My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Nate Fast is a professor at the University of Southern California, where he researches power, leadership, and technology adoption. Specifically, Nate examines how power and status hierarchies shape decision-making, how people's identities shape their professional networks, and how artificial intelligence is shaping the future. Nate is the director of the Neely Center for Ethical Leadership and Decision-Making and co-director of the Psychology of Technology Institute. He earned his PhD in organizational behavior from Stanford University and has received numerous awards for both teaching and research, including USC's Golden Apple Teaching Award, the Dean's Award for Excellence in Research, and Poets and Quants Best 40 Business School Professors Under the Age of 40. I hope you enjoy learning from Nate Fast today, because I always do. Nate, it's great to catch up with you today. We share a lot of the same research interests, and we attend a lot of the same conferences, so it's great to be able to connect again today. Great to see you again. As you think back on your research, are there two to three simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass along to others? Uh, Yes. Uh, So I have three lessons, one about uh, power, one about networking, and uh, one is about tech adoption. So kind of across across the board, but they all relate to the self. Um, And so the first one is, um, as we we know, um, power is incredibly important in organizations. So all the good projects that get implemented, um, to some degree, they get implemented partly because they're good projects and good ideas, but partly because somebody had the power to make them happen. And on the flip side, when good ideas and good programs and so on don't get implemented, it's because uh, nobody had the power to to make it happen. So we all need to navigate power to some degree um, to play that game a little bit. Um, not that we need to become you know, power hungry, but just navigating that world. And so um, I, early on in my career, was really interested in the psychology of power and how it shapes us as we navigate um, hierarchies. And um, and so I had a couple of um, different lines of research within that field that kind of suggest the lesson, which is that it's incredibly important to manage your ego when you're playing the the power game or, or in, involved in, in hierarchies. And so this is some work with um, across a couple of projects with Deb Grunfeld, um, with Nero Savanathan, Nicole Mayer, and Adam Glensky. And um, the first set of um, findings was that um, power exacerbates the illusion of control and, and overconfidence. And so it enhances the self. Um, and so we, we all experience the illusion of control, and it's something that researchers have, have established pretty strongly. And um, what it refers to is this idea that we think we can control events that are really hard to control or maybe even random uh, chance-based events uh, like the lottery or like rolling dice or um, pulling the lever on a slot machine when we're gambling. And the idea is that if we are familiar with those things or we have a chance to practice those things first, we actually feel like we have more control over them uh, than we do. And those are that's called control heuristics. Um, and what we proposed and found was that power itself serves as a control heuristic. And so when we're thinking about like what, how much control do we have in a particular situation, um, one of the heuristics that we use is how powerful we are in that moment. And um, of course, that's accurate in the sense that like when we have power over um, a particular domain, we do have more control in that domain. Um, But what we found is that our perception of control extends way beyond that domain. And so um, we would do, you know, through some of our experiments, we would manipulate 
randomly assigned people to high power, low power, neutral power conditions and found that people actually in the high power condition um, felt like they would have more influence over a national election or over the national economy and things, things like that, that they clearly, they don't. One vote is not going to shape a national election. Um, the interesting thing is that that actually mediated their um, reported intentions of voting. And so that could actually have some self-fulfilling effects if we feel like we have more control than we do, and then therefore we take action on it. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting, but um, there's a lot of, um, there, there's a second kind of uh, paper where we found that um, power holders were more confident in their accuracy of their knowledge. So overconfident decision-making. So they lost more money on betting tasks and things like that based on their own answers to trivia questions. And so, so that's one side of the coin, which is like power can enhance the self. We have to be careful about that um, as we gain power. The second is um, power can actually threaten the self under um, certain circumstances. And this was kind of a, a second set of findings um, in a couple of papers, one with Serena Chen and one with um, Ethan Burris and Caroline Bartel. And basically what we found is um, when you think about that, the power comes in the form of a role, right? And um, we tend to, when we feel power over other people, we tend to kind of activate that social role. And when you look at history, you know, evolutionarily, um, you know, we've evolved and we created the, the high power role to kind of protect the tribe or protect the community. And we expect things of the high power person, right? We expect them to have more competence, superior abilities and all of that. And so what we found is when uh, we give people power, but they feel inadequate uh, for some reason or another, that's actually more threatening to high power people than it is to low power people. And um, they tend to respond with aggression. Um, that's the one way that they can um, actually reinstate their sense, their feeling of control. And, and um, so power paired with incompetence leads to aggression. Um, and then the second paper, we found that it, you know, managers across a huge uh, multinational oil company actually stifled and suppressed employee voice, um, not when they thought they were the, the, the smartest uh, person in the room, but when they actually felt inadequate in their role. Um, because they felt threatened by the voice. And so so that's the second piece of that coin, which is like, don't let power get to your head and become overconfident, but also, um, you know, kind of understand that when you're in a high power role, you're going to feel incompetent from time to time. I mean, that's kind of normal and um, and uh, kind of normalize that so you don't feel so threatened uh, and lash out um, to, to those around you. Really interesting and timely for me because I'm teaching leadership this semester and tomorrow we're talking about power. And okay. one of the exercises we're going to do, I don't know if you've done this star power exercise. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I, star power um, for listeners is this exercise where uh, you basically um, let people compete in a game that's basically random. I mean, there's a little tiny bit of skill to it, but it's basically random and it's a multi-round game where whoever uh, wins the first round gets entrenched and then you stack the deck so they continue to win. And then they can use the power to um, basically hold down the other groups and to continue to win. And I, I did it last year and I had a really interesting comment. One of the, one of the students who won the first round and then kept winning, uh, they modified the rules and used the power to really entrench themselves. And at the end of his, um, at the end of the period, he wrote, or he said in the class, I can't believe I used my power to hold other people down rather than to help them out. I never thought I would have done that. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, this is always really interesting to me. Now, I haven't heard these lessons quite framed like this. Uh, so or at least a little bit in terms of, I've, I've heard some of the Adam Glinsky stuff on power and how power can corrupt. So basically power 
can enhance the overconfidence and enhances the self. So we have to be careful of that. But then we also have to be careful if we're not um, competent or if powerful leaders are not competent, then they're more likely to act aggressive. So we have to watch ourselves both ways, not be too overconfident. And then if we're not competent or concerned or feeling inadequate, then we have to check ourselves to not be too aggressive. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like a uh, darned if you do, do, darned if you don't kind of situation where if you feel, and, and, and the key is feeling a sense of competence, right? When you feel really good about yourself and your skills, uh, then you run the risk of like becoming overconfident. And, but Got then it. you feel bad, then you run the risk of like lashing out at other people and blaming them. And so just managing the ego in that sense is really, being self-aware is, is really the key. Really interesting. So yeah, it's all about the competence. Okay, very cool. Uh, you have another lesson you want to share. Yeah, the second one um, is really kind of born out of, um, or we used um, identity-based motivation theory, which is this great theory by Daphne Oyserman. Um, and this one actually came out of my teaching. So I was interested in, uh, you know, I, I, I've been for years teaching um, MBA students at the, at the Marshall School of Business here and executives. And when I teach about networking and the importance of expanding our networks, um, you know, I find that at least half the class hates this idea, right? They don't want to, they don't want to do networking because it feels, you know, and it's, there's research there out there that shows that, you know, people feel like it's dirty or it's instrumental. It's, it's just not a, a good way to be, to use other people. Um, but the truth is that all of our roles require networking and, and relationship building, and there's nothing wrong with building relationships and, uh, collaborating on projects, right? Like that's what, that's what professional networking is all about. And, um, and so I was really curious about like, what are the psychological barriers that are preventing people from doing this? And so we decided to go to the lab, like us, uh, you know, as researchers, we always do when we're curious about things. And so um, this was with a student, the Raj and a postdoc, Oliver Fisher. And um, we basically tested three different um, tools or mechanisms um, or psychological processes by which we could maybe get people to engage in, in more networking. And so we pitted these three things against each other. One was self-interest. Um, so we really kind of like in some conditions, we would tell people uh, about why it really benefits them to engage in networking. They make more money, the, you know, more success, all that kind of stuff. And this is the stuff that we typically teach in business schools. Um, the second was identity. Um, and so trying to help people um, understand how networking was uh, aligned with their self, aligned with a sense of who they are uh, and their identity. Um, and then the third was make it easy, uh, make it sound more easy. And basically the idea being here that the barrier is that networking feels difficult and tough to do. And if we can kind of highlight all the ways that it's actually easier than we think that maybe people would um, would be more motivated to do it. And um, and so when I'm teaching now, when I'm teaching this finding, I always ask people ahead of time, what do they think uh, was the best, um, was the most effective mechanism? And it's always a third, you know, 33, about a third, a third, a third. So nobody really knows, which is like the perfect scenario as a researcher, because we don't like uh, when people assume that our findings are, are super obvious. Um, if we tell them the finding first, then they'll think it was obvious. But if right. I, <laughs> but if you force them to kind of make a guess ahead of time, they have no idea. So it's great. I'm, I'm wondering. I don't know. Like I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, actually, we found that two of them really didn't move the dial at all, and identity moved the dial. Identity was a very powerful shaper. It was that second one. So yeah. that was the reason I was going to guess that is because I thought it was the least likely. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <Because> yeah. <laughs> because I teach, you know, self-interest and make it easy. Like that's the path I go. And yeah. so I thought, well, if you're sharing this, it's probably because it's the 
one that I don't use as much. So anyway, that's that's interesting. And I don't, I mean, it's easy to say. I thought it was obvious, but of course it's a hindsight bias. But, um, uh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think I think that you're right. So so people already know it's in their self-interest, right? So that that's nothing new to them. So that's, I think it, it's not that that um, concept isn't compelling. It's just that they already know that. They're, they're, they've been told that before. And um, and whether it's easy or hard, I think that that's less of a barrier than identity. And so what we found um, is that when we can have people think about, and so this uh, this has so the lesson here is if you're wanting to um, motivate yourself to uh, expand your network, or you're wanting to teach other people to expand their networks, uh, focus on identity and. Very few people identify, um, personally identify, like this is a part of myself is that I like to go to um, networking events and pass around my business card and talk to people that I don't know in a loud, you know, room full of people, right? Some people, maybe that's who they are, but like mo most people are not. But a lot of people do identify with this idea of like, I like going to parties um, or I like um, doing book clubs. I like doing movie discussion groups. I like... Uh, running with uh with other people and exercising etc so there's a lot of different activities that um are part of who we are that can be done in a way that builds relationships or maybe just helping other people or finding ways to to be of service all of those are ways to expand and build our network in in meaningful um non kind of instrumental ways um, but they also build our professional network and so um aligning the self with the act of networking is is pretty um productive yeah, really helpful to me because I have focused on the make it easy. And, you know, it's uh, one of the things I talk about is like networking is just being nice. And it's like, I like that definition. I like that way of thinking of it, but it still doesn't help. Like people know it's valuable already and it's still hard. Even if you think it's just being nice, like it can still be hard. Uh, so I really like this idea of thinking in terms of identity and the thought of going to a cocktail party for me to just like socialize, it just like turns my stomach. Um, <laughs> but the thought of being able to interview interesting people and try to learn from them is like that excites me and both can be seen as networking. Um, but I certainly identify with the latter. And so I, I really appreciate that framing and I will teach that to my students now. So I, I love that. Any other kind of lessons you want to share before we wrap up here? Yeah, no, that's terrific. And that's, you know, personally, I love organizing conferences. We met at a conference, Psych of Tech conference, and that's a great way to meet people, doing podcasts, different things like that. Yeah, the third, so the third um, lesson is about tech adoption and the importance of looking at the self and looking at psychology when we're thinking about um, technology adoption and how technology changes society. We don't want to um, undersell the role of psychology and all of that. And so um, this was some work with uh, Rajni Ravindran, who was a, a PhD student at the time. She's now at Darden. Um, and she and I were really interested in behavior tracking. And when you look at human history, we've always resisted this idea of being tracked and monitored and surveilled. We, we don't like someone looking over our shoulder, whether they're coming in to kind of evaluate our, uh, our teaching or evaluate our performance in, in workplace and so on we feel judged and we feel the potential for negative evaluation. And even in contexts where we feel like we're gonna do an okay job, um, it does reduce our sense of autonomy because we feel aware of this um, presence, right? And when that presence is gone, we feel free and autonomous and more relaxed. 
And so we've tended to reject it. But in recent years, um, Rajni and I were recognizing that people are actually increasingly adopting um, or being willing to, to be tracked and actually seeking that out in some cases. And so we're curious what's going on there and what role is technology playing in this? And what we found is that technology, uh, the core mechanism here is that technology removes this pressure, this feeling of judgment from the equation. So when you remove the human from the equation, you still, you're still being tracked, but it's by a smartwatch or it's by, you know, an app on your computer or something like that. You don't feel like that's going to judge you in the same way that a human does. And, um, and so people are much more willing to be, uh, to be tracked um, by technologies. They still prefer not to be tracked, but, you know, to be clear, um, but uh, they're much more willing to and comfortable being tracked um, by technologies than by humans. And this has a couple implications. I think this can be a good and bad thing, right? So it can be good in the sense that, um, you know, people, we might be able to use technology to assess and give people feedback about sensitive issues like civil, incivility, harassment, things like that. People might be more willing to opt into programs that are, you know, giving them feedback on those things. Um, on the negative side, though, uh, you know, I think that um, this runs the risk. We run the risk of kind of losing our privacy by adopting too many technologies and being too free with um, the idea that a social media app or, you know, a tool that we're using or our workplace um, can kind of track and monitor um, everything we do. And so I think we do really run the risk of, of making decisions that, like, you know, creating a world that maybe we didn't like after all, <laughs> you know, once we get there. Um, so, but so, so I think that the, the key lesson here is to really understand the self as we think about tech, tech use and tech adoption. Related to this, at the Psych of Tech conference that we attended at USC, um, I remember uh, you took us to a lab, and I forget the name of the lab, um, but I saw this demonstration where uh, it was an AI uh, avatar counselor that was essentially screening vets for PTSD, and it blew my mind how, if you would have told me beforehand, you know, you're going to have an interview with an avatar, an AI avatar, and, you know, how effective would it be? Would you want to open up? I would have said, well, no, of course not. You're going to feel weird talking to a computer. And then I watched the demonstration and the avatar was so non-judgmental. And I just watched that and I could just imagine myself opening up to a AI counselor watching it. I was just so I was blown away at how easy it was to open up for that reason of not feeling judged. And I'm, I imagine, you know, counselors, the good counselors do a good job of this anyway. They they try to create this non-judgmental atmosphere, but um it did make me think in that moment that yeah, technology is doesn't feel as evaluative or judgmental as a human. Uh, so anyway, that, that's kind of stuck with me ever since then. And that was a conference you helped organize. Oh yeah, that's so cool. I do remember that it stuck with me as well. We had to stop the demonstration because um, I think the person doing it was like starting to share some personal stuff. <laughs> so we're like, we better cut this off. So uh, yeah, it was pretty fascinating. So. Yeah, well, they, I love these lessons. I love this framing. I mean, these are lessons that, I touch on all these topics in my courses is, you know, I did, I did my dissertation on uh, AI and why I think we're prone to underestimate it. So we're obviously interested in, of course, the impact of technology, um, but power and networking are all things I'm teaching in leadership and organizational behavior. So I love these lessons. I love the frameworks you've given me to help think about them. Look forward to sharing them with my students and teachers. This was just perfect for this podcast. So just want to thank you again for coming on. Terrific. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. 
Nate Fast is an expert on power and identity, and I love the lessons he shared today. First, power paired with competence can lead to overconfidence, but power paired with incompetence can lead to aggression. When we're feeling competent, power can lead to the illusion of control, in which we think we can control things we can't, such as an election, the lottery, or even the behavior of others, thus making us overconfident. But if we're incompetent, we're prone to lash out at others to reinstate our feelings of control. The key is to be self-aware, to not let power go to our head when we're feeling capable, and not lash out at others when we're feeling inadequate. Second, if you want to motivate yourself to expand your network, identify yourself as someone who likes to connect with people. When I've taught networking in the past, I've tried to motivate my students by focusing on self-interest and how easy networking can be. But Nate's research shows that identity-based motivation is more effective than my approach. Identifying as someone who likes to attend book clubs, exercise groups, or even service activities can help us expand our network. Third, we need to be careful to not create a world that we don't want to live in. We are becoming more willing for technology to track us, which can be a good thing in domains where we might feel judged. However, we run the risk of losing our privacy if we allow too much tracking and monitoring, so we should be thoughtful in how we allow ourselves to be tracked. Nate shared great, profound lessons today that can have massive implications for all of us, and by teaching us about ourselves, he was able to drive home his main idea of the importance of understanding ourselves. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.